Well, good morning. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. I want to welcome you this morning. If you're new, I want to welcome you. I know every Sunday is somebody's first Sunday, and so I hope you were welcomed when you came in. I want to welcome you again. I know it's a big deal to come to a new church, new place, and all those things, and so we want to invite you into what God is doing as a part of Phoenix Bible Church. Uh, before we get into the sermon today, we're actually closing out uh, the book of Nehemiah. We've been in that book for nine weeks uh, going through the whole book chunk by chunk and seeing what God's doing and rebuilding this wall and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, but it doesn't have a fairy tale ending. And that may bother some of us. It's going to maybe bother you as you get to the end of chapter 13 and you see that, but it really shouldn't bother us if we understand what we're learning here. Uh, because it, it's not a fairy tale ending, but neither is life. And so maybe some of you have struggled with the Bible. Maybe even you struggle with it now. Maybe you have friends who struggle with it. It's why you need to invite them to Easter, right, to hear God's word. But maybe you struggle with the Bible or know others who do, and you wonder, like, is it true? Can I trust it? And listen, I would tell you that chapter 13 and the way this ends, it shouldn't make us doubt God. It should make us declare God's truth. Because what we see is this isn't a manipulated choreographed story that ends perfectly to get us to see how great these people are and how, how good their God is. No, it's a story that relates to real life, that many of us, we have ups and then we have downs. We take steps forward and then we take steps back. And what's great is we can all relate to Nehemiah chapters 11 through 13 because that's what they experience. But as I look at the landscape of the church, I don't think we talk about that enough. I don't think we talk about that, that life is a struggle, especially in the church. I, I don't know about you, but I would grow up hearing testimonies, stories of, of people who followed God, and then all of their sin, all of their problems went away. That, that people would get on stages like this, and maybe you've heard this, and they would talk about, hey, I used to have these sins in my life. I used to have these problems in my life, but then, ta-da, I followed God, and it all went away. The struggle is over. Like, it's weird. Like, I used to do all these things like drugs, and, and I used to cuss a lot. But then I followed God, and somehow, instead of cussing, I'm singing. I mean, I just can't help it. I mean, I just walk around, and melodies spring forth from my mouth. Right? How he loves us. And we just, it's just natural now. And you hear those stories, and you're, and you're thinking, if you're like me, you're thinking, I decided to follow God, too but I still struggle. I mean, I have some of those times, maybe not the melodies springing forth from my mouth all the time. I have those times, but, but I also have times of, of struggle. Like for me, I don't know for you, for me the struggle isn't over yet. And that's why Nehemiah is so helpful for us, even the way that it ends, is because we, we see and we get the bigger picture of Scripture of what do we do with that? Have you ever wondered that? What do we do with the fact that the struggle isn't over? What do we do with the end of Nehemiah? Well, it's a fitting question because today we celebrate Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the first day of the week that led to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason it's called Palm Sunday, maybe that's a new word for you, maybe you're new to the church, that's totally fine. What it means is, is when Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, that he entered in on a donkey, it was a triumphal entry, and people would gather on the sides and they would lay down palm branches on each side, and Jesus entered through that. 
And everybody celebrated him as a king because that's what you would do. You would lay down palm branches as a king would enter into a city. And people celebrated Jesus like that. But a week later, some of those same people went from celebrating Jesus to yelling, crucify Jesus. And part of the reason, listen, here's the connection. Part of the reason that needed to happen Jesus needed to ride into Jerusalem. He needed to go to the cross and die for sin is because of what happens in Nehemiah chapter 13 and the end of the story. We're going to get back to that at the end of the story. We're going to make that connection more, but first we have to set the stage. The story of Nehemiah, if you're new, uh, catch up on the website, look at the podcast. There's way too much to catch you up on this morning, but I will give you a brief summary. The brief summary is this, that the Israelites... The people of God in the Old Testament had a hometown. It was Jerusalem. They were exiled from that hometown. And in all these years, they were away from their hometown. Their city became ruins. All their walls were broken down. Their gates were burned down. And that later on, this guy named Nehemiah, this Jewish guy who's living away from his hometown, gets a heart for his people. It's a heart for his hometown of Jerusalem. And God sets up these crazy scenarios where he's able to go back to Jerusalem, rally his people, and rebuild the walls, the city, and then begin to rebuild the people. Because there was much to be done. And so that's what we've seen. Last week we saw as he rebuilds this people, they have a past that they have to confront. And so they confront it. We talked about confession And then we also talked about how they made this covenant with God to obey his commands and and lay a foundation of his word in their lives. And so that's where we come to today. Nehemiah chapter 11 is where we're going to be. I'd love for you to actually look at your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, if you're new to the church, that's fine. Take a second, grab your phone. I know you have one of those. Search Bible on your app. It won't offend me at all. Do that right now so you can look at this with with me. Search Nehemiah 11. If you don't want to do that, there should be a Bible right next to you on an armrest. Grab that. Go about a quarter of the way through the Old Testament. You'll see Ezra and then Nehemiah. We've said this the last several weeks, but we're going to cover a lot of text. And so if you don't follow along, I'm going to ask you to look at specific verses. If you don't follow along, you're going to miss out on some stuff. So here's where we're going. Overall, two big points. We're going to talk about serving and celebrating And then we're going to talk about forgetting and remembering. And so first point, serving and celebrating. Look at the text with me. Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. This is what it says. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And so you got to remember our context here. The city, the walls, they were broken down for many years. And so a lot of people had left the city and were now living in surrounding villages. Kind of like Phoenix, right? They had some urban sprawl going on. They had people living in the city and they had people living around the city. But slowly people are starting to come back to, to the city. Why? Because it's been rebuilt. Their walls are rebuilt. It's time to do that now, but it's happening slowly. It says in the text, look at it with me, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. The rest of the people, they begin to cast lots. It's like a lottery system. It says one out of ten people, if you were chosen, you would go from your surrounding village, you would go back into the city, and that some people, 
They didn't wait to cast lots. They just volunteered their time. Look at the text with me. Verse 2, it says, the people who volunteered were blessed. The people who said, hey, I don't need to cast lots. I'm just going to go. These people were blessed. Now, now why is that? A couple things. One, the city of Jerusalem was a safer place because it had rebuilt walls, but it was still a target for enemies. And now it wasn't just little robberies or things like that. It was neighboring nations who saw Jerusalem as being back on the map, and they were a target. And so if you move back into the city, it was dangerous. You still had to defend these walls. And so the first reason this was a big deal to move back into the city is it was dangerous. The second reason is you got to remember, people have been living outside the city for a long time. They've been living in these neighboring villages. They had developed friendships there. They had family there. And now that everything's built back up, they're expected just to to leave their things and go back into the city. And that was difficult for a lot of people to do. And so they blessed the people that said, hey, I'm in. I'll do that. I know that's hard. I know it's dangerous. I know i got to leave some things behind, but but I'm going to do that. And then we come to verse 3, and we get this long list. There's a, a lot of lists in the book of Nehemiah. If you haven't noticed that, you haven't been reading with us. Lots of lists. There's a list here. And it lists out all the people who lived in the city. Then it goes down a little bit further. It lists out all the people who lived in the surrounding villages. That continues all the way to the end of chapter 11. And there's one quick thing I want you guys to see from this list. We're not going to go through it all, but I want to give you some highlights. Here's the one thing I want you to learn. Each person that's accounted for in this chapter plays a different but essential role. Each person plays a different but essential role role. If you look through it, you'll see people like priests and Levites. These were the spiritual leaders of the day. You'll also see temple servants. You'll see gatekeepers, singers, different families and tribes. You'll see, again, people living in the city, people living just outside the city, that each person plays a different but essential role. And the same is true today for God's people today, that we have, listen, we have our own list of names even at Phoenix Bible Church. We have different people, different families, different roles. We have people who lead more spiritually, people who do the behind-the-scenes work, the temple servants. We have gatekeepers, singers. We have all these different people with different roles, but they're all essential. And if you're a part of that this morning, we're two and a half years old as a church. If you've been a part of that with us, if you're new to this, you have the chance to be a part of this, to have your name on the list. Do you see that? That just like the people in Nehemiah's day, they were building this new community, laying this new foundation that by God's grace would outlive them and their kids. They were all a part of this thing, playing essential roles. Just like they were doing that, God's doing that through us. That by God's grace, I don't know if you realize this, we didn't start Phoenix Bible Church for a few years of a good story. Like, oh, how sweet. They started a new church They made it, right? That's not why we started the church. We started the church because of this vision of of love Jesus, live like Jesus, lead others to Jesus, that that we would speak hard truths, but we would cover them with grace, that we would be biblically robust but culturally relevant. We started a church like that in the heart of our city because I want to, I hope you want to see, I think God wants to see this church continue on way past us. 
that, that my prayer for Phoenix Bible is that it would outlive me, that, that it would be here for my kids, that it would be here for our kids, that it would be here for this community way after we're gone. Don't miss that. And some of you serve in incredible ways. You're, you're on the list. You're doing different things. Some of you are more out front. Some of you are more behind the scenes. I think of a guy named Eric who maybe you saw if you were looking while we were praying. I don't know if you're going to admit that. But every time we, we start the sermon and then we end the sermon, there's a guy named Eric who brings up the pulpit. This thing, it's heavy. I don't know if you've seen that. It's heavy. He brings it up. He takes it back down. Last Sunday... My throat was causing me some issues. Right before I'm about to get up to preach, having some issues with my throat, I kind of have to use my throat to preach, right? And so somebody brought me some water during the opening prayer before I even started to preach. It was amazing. And I had the water, I took a sip, and I was doing okay for the rest of the sermon. But there's a problem. There's a little shelf in here, and I put that water on the shelf. And it doesn't have a lid on it. It's a cup of water. Well, my brother Eric, at the end of the sermon, I'm praying. He goes to get the, the pulpit and starts bringing it down the, the steps, and all I hear is slosh, 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 slosh. Right, Eric? You remember that? And, and I just feel, I'm praying. You guys don't know this, but I'm praying, and I just feel so bad for Eric because there's nothing he can do at this point. He's just slosh, 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 and you hear it, and it's spilling out everywhere on the floor, and we're about to take communion Right? But Eric was a champ and just continued on and, and did that and acted like it wasn't a big deal. And as we were singing songs and taking communion, I look over and Eric's on the ground and he's wiping up the water from the cup. Right? And why tell you that? Because there's things that happen in this church, around this church, in our community, through you, that you have no clue about. That everybody plays a different role, but they're all essential. That we have to have the pulpit to preach the word of God. Like, I don't know where I would put my notes, right? Like, that's essential. But, but some of us don't even see those kinds of things. Some of us don't even see that every Sunday morning, there's a group of us that get here. There's a group of people back there. There's a group of people in kids' ministry who get up and do things like run cables, who look for cases, who roll them out, who set up stuff. And some of you show up and you just think, maybe just the fairies brought that out in the night, but they didn't. There were people, look around, people in this room who did that, who do that every Sunday. Listen, there's people in kids' ministry right now who are, hopefully not, but maybe getting vomited on, right? Maybe getting spit up on by kids. There's people who do that every Sunday. You think, well, I don't know if that's as significant as the preaching of God's word. Listen, if you're a parent, how about we just not have people over there and just let you leave your kids and just see what happens? None of us would ever do that, right? If we did, somebody would call CPS on the whole church, right? But, but not even that. There's people over there not just holding your babies. There's people making little disciples of Jesus that right now my wife is one of them. Just, just today, she's teaching a lesson to kids about Palm Sunday, about Easter and the resurrection. Megan Salonga, I'm looking at her. Last week, she was in there doing that. There's many more people than I can name. There's people doing that. Listen, I don't know how some of these people do it. My wife, for example, just because I see her, 
I don't go to church with my wife. I don't know if you realize that reality as a pastor. We never go to church together as a family. We have three children. I come up here early every Sunday, and she somehow, superwoman, manages to get all three of our kids ready and in church on time. And today, she prepared a lesson in the midst of that, picked up one of Neela's friends, my daughter, one of her friends before she came here, and is somehow teaching a lesson right there. So listen, don't just thank my wife. You need to, when you go pick up your kids, thank all of our kids' ministry volunteers. Amen? Like, you can thank them now. That's great. Some of them are in here right now. That's good. If you don't serve in kids, sign up to serve once a month for six months. There's my plug, right? Why? Because everybody plays a different role, but they're all essential. Even the ones that are during the week, yesterday, Unite Phoenix, serving the city, our community groups, laying out scripture, applying God's word in our lives. People I hear about having block parties. Yes, that's service. You can have block parties for the glory of God, right? Inviting your neighbors, having dinner, intersecting with people who don't know Jesus, inviting people to Easter. All of these things are essential. They're different, but they're all essential. The question that we all need to consider this morning is, what's our, what's our role? What's my role? Would my name be on the list? Am I a part of this thing? And listen, I know some of you are new to church, coming back to church. Maybe you think, man, I've been burned by the church. I don't know if I want to jump into this thing. I don't know if I want my name to be on the list. But you need to know if you don't, you'll, you'll miss out. That a few thousand years later, we're reading about these guys who contributed. This wasn't one man, Nehemiah. This didn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't a solo project. It was a community rebuild of everything around them that God used them in a mighty way. We have that same opportunity today as Phoenix Bible Church. I could preach a whole sermon on that, but I'm not going to. We pick up in chapter 12. Look at chapter 12 with me. We have another list. Chapter 12 starts off with this history of the priests and Levites. These are, again, the religious leaders. Again, these people matter, how God used them. What Nehemiah does is he chronicles this past of these religious leaders all the way up to his day. It's evidence of the faithfulness of God, that God has continued to raise up people who would lead God's people spiritually, even amidst the ruins of the city of Jerusalem. And so chapter 12, that's part of what it's about, and it really sets the stage for what's next. Look down with me at chapter 12, verse 27. Verse 27, chapter 12. We see the dedication of the wall. Stephen mentioned this a little bit. The dedication of the wall, it's been built, it's been finished for a while, but they want to celebrate that and dedicate it to God. And so there's essentially two things that happen. One, they purify the people. If you look at it, they even purify the gates and the wall. Look at verse 30 real quick with me. Verse 30 says this. It says, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Now, it doesn't tell us how uh, that happens specifically in this text, but we see from other Old Testament texts that, that typically this would happen by making a sacrifice of an animal and then sprinkling blood on those people, on those walls, on those gates. And that would be God's way of purifying them. It's way too much to talk about now, but, but that's God's way of doing that in the Old Testament. Now, again, that's a different context, right? So, so don't go home today and tell your wife, like, hey, we need to sprinkle the blood of the cat on the walls. 
right? That's not gonna go well for you. Not a good idea. Like we purify ourselves differently. Really, we have already been purified by the blood of Jesus. That's why when we take communion, we take the bread and we dip it in juice or wine and we partake of that because we're celebrating that the blood, the the blood of Jesus is represented by the wine or the juice. And we're celebrating that by God's grace, by the sacrifice of Jesus, he's already purified us when we place our faith in him and his death and resurrection. And so we get purified differently, but this is how they purified the people. This is part of the dedication of the wall. The second thing we see in this dedication is they praise God, and they do that with music. Look at verse 27. It says they celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, and with cymbals, and harps, and lyres. They bring out all the instruments, even the the strings, right? Now, we're always asking for a violin player. And this is why. It's biblical, right? So, so if any of you play violin, if you play another string instrument, right, Bradley, we'll take, yeah, harps, lyres, yeah, all those included. Uh, if you play those, let us know. Let Bradley know, that deep voice back there, one of our worship leaders. Uh, we'd love to have you play and sing. This is why we sing in church, to celebrate God's faithfulness. This is why they were singing. But it's not just instruments. Notice verse 31 There's two choirs. This is really interesting. There's two choirs of people that are are gathering to sing and to celebrate as a part of this dedication of the wall. And you need to notice this. Verse 31 and verse 38 tell us they go up onto the wall. Verse 38, they're on the wall. And so you just have to picture this. This is a big wall. It's a wall that goes all the way around the city. And what verse 31 and 38 tell us is these two choirs that are assembled with all these instruments, they're actually on the wall. Can you picture that? It's a big wall, right? It's a strong wall. And it says they're giving thanks three times. Verse 27, verse 31, verse 38. The reason they're doing this, the reason they're on a wall with harps, singing with choirs, is they're giving thanks to God. Verse 43 It says they're rejoicing four times so loud that people far away could hear it. Now, why is all this happening? There's lots of reasons. One is one of the ways we worship is we sing. One of the reasons why we gather here today is to sing and worship. It's not the only way we worship, but it is a significant way. That's when we sing and and get instruments together. And that's why we want to hear your voices because it's a, a declaration before God of all that he has done on our behalf. But secondly, you have to go back to earlier on in Nehemiah. Remember a guy named Tobiah? You guys remember him? Yeah, two of you? You, you can respond, it's okay. Uh, we're gonna see Tobiah again in a second, so I will remind you more about this guy, but Tobiah and this guy named Sam Ballot, these were two guys that would come along at every point and oppose Nehemiah and the people of God and the rebuilding work that they were doing. And one of the things, I don't know if you remember this, one of the things that Tobiah did was he essentially made fun of the Jews because their, their wall was in such ruins. He, he would make fun of them and say, you guys can't rebuild that wall. And he said specifically that your wall is so broke that a fox could knock it down. Remember the first Yo Mama joke in history, right? That's where it was. 
That's Tobiah. Your wall's so broke, even a fox could knock it down. Now we come to the end. And there's not a fox. There's two choirs. There's harps. There's lyres. There's cymbals. There's two choirs standing up on this strong wall that God has built that he's taken the city from ruins to a rebuilt structure that they're now celebrating and praising God over. Can you picture it? They had to, some of them had to, I would have been, I admit, been thinking, how you like me now, Tobiah? Right? How you like me now, Tobiah? I mean, there's not just a fox on the wall, there's a choir on the wall, there's two of them. This is God's faithfulness at work. They're taking a moment, they're pausing, they're celebrating the victory that God has worked in and through them. Do you see it? That's why we sing in church. And I know some of you are thinking, well, Tim, I don't know if God's rebuilt a wall in my life. I don't know if I've seen God rebuild a whole city in my life. And that may be true, but you've seen God rebuild your life. You've seen God put away sin in your life and past in your life, heal you of that, forgive you of that. You've seen God join you together with other people, with a community of faith. That's worth praising God for. You've seen God's goodness. You've seen his holiness. That's worth praising God for. That's why we sing to God and celebrate because we can look back and think of a day when our lives were in ruins And God took those ruins and he rebuilt it. We can all sing. We can all celebrate. Don't miss those opportunities. When's the last time you celebrated? I know life is hard. I know planning a church is hard. But when's the last time you celebrated? We have a monthly meeting with some of our leaders and we just went through a section and just took time to celebrate and just name things. To be honest with you, that if I don't write down, I forget. And just I ask them, hey, give me some things that God is doing in your life, in your ministry, in our church, because we need to pause and celebrate. Do you do that? When's the last time you've done that? We need to celebrate God's goodness. He's the same God today working in our lives. The next thing we see, verse 44. Look at that verse with me. They continue to serve and celebrate as they give. Notice they set up storerooms where they can give their first fruits and tithes unto God and the work that he's doing. This is one of the places in the Old Testament where we see this principle of tithing. Uh, if you're new to that, it basically means 10%, the first fruits. Literally, they would take all the first and the best of their crops and their resources, and they would give them to the house of God. They would give them to the work of God. And so maybe you've heard about tithing in the church. This is where that principle comes from. Now, As we look at the New Testament, look forward in the New Testament, we're not obligated under the tithe. But the New Testament talks about over and over again that we should give cheerfully and sacrificially and generously. And that really, if you look at it, the tithe is just a baseline. The tithe is just a starting point. The idea is that it's worship. The idea for them is the celebration didn't stop. The celebration continued as they worshiped with their resources and their finances. And we see that laid out here. And that's the same thing we do. I don't know if you know this. We sing, we hear God's word, and then we continue to worship. We try to say that. We put it on the screen. that we continue to worship through our giving. 
And so the way this works out in my life, I've mentioned this before, but my family and I decided a while back that we would just give 10% off our gross automatically. It comes out every month. It's first. It's best. It's not going to be pushed aside because we have a hard month or some other things happens. We just decided, hey, this is scary. I'm a real person. It's scary to give that money away, but this money isn't mine. This is God's. We already talked about that in FPU. And so we just decided as a family, we're going to give that away. Listen, I would encourage you to have that same conversation as a spouse, with roommates, with friends. How can I worship God with my resources, with my tithe, with my first fruits? What is that? Maybe it's a lot, maybe it's a little, but you would take one of those steps because, listen, that's part of your worship to God. Have you left that out of your worship, your celebration with God? Have you said, God, you can have my service, you can have my time, you can have all these other things, but my money, ah, that's a little awkward. (laughs) I don't know if, God, I want you to have my money. Listen, God is telling you, it's not your money, it's mine. That we're stewards, we're not owners. That it's part of our worship. Jesus talks about this. Matthew 6, that where our treasure is, there our heart is. That it's a reflection of who we worship, what we worship. If you haven't considered that, I would encourage you to do that today. That's how they continue to worship and praise God and celebrate him. This is how chapter 12 ends. They serve, they celebrate. But it's not the ending of the book, right? If it was, this would be the fairy tale ending, right? They dedicate the wall. They have choirs on it singing. They give of their resources That would be the way I would end Nehemiah, right? But that's not the way God ends it. Look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, we're going to skip down to verse 6. There's so much here we could read. I want to give you a little context and then hit on a few specific things, so stay with me. Chapter 13, verse 6, it says this. While this was taking place, this is Nehemiah speaking, I was not in Jerusalem For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. So that just sets us up a little bit for what's going to take place in chapter 13. There's a lot there. We're going to hit a few key points. Basically, what we just read is that Nehemiah has gone back to King Artaxerxes. Again, remember, if you've been on this journey in Nehemiah with us, Nehemiah didn't start in Jerusalem. He started with this king, Artaxerxes. He was his cupbearer. He was his servant. He left that king to go to Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall and rebuild the people. He left him with the idea that he would come back one day. And so what we've seen that at some point, Nehemiah did go back. He left Jerusalem, went to the king. He raised up all these leaders, all the priests, all the Levites, all the people who would run the show while he was gone. But then he comes back. We don't know how long that period of time is. I can tell you this, that he was most likely going back to the capital city of Susa, which I believe was about a 55-day walk there and a 55-day walk back. Most people think he stayed for quite a bit of time, at least two years. And so as we come to chapter 13, again, try to fit yourself in this context, we've been a couple years away from the dedication of the wall. Okay? Everybody tracking with me? So here we come. Chapter 13, a couple years, maybe more have passed, and Nehemiah comes back to some problems. We know that verse 7 tells us he discovers evil, right? He doesn't just say he discovers some mistakes. He 
He doesn't just say he discovers some, some issues. He discovers evil. What's the evil? There's three main things. The first one is there's a disruption of temple worship. You got to go back a little bit. Chapter 10, we talked about this last week, this covenant that they made with God. A covenant in the Bible is a sacred promise that's made with God before other people. And we saw them make that covenant. We went through those five primary things that they made a covenant with God about. And what we're going to see is they go on a few years later to break all those covenants, to break all those commandments that they had committed to follow with God. And the key issue, the reason why we see a disruption of the temple worship, you see it in verse 11. Nehemiah says this, why is the house of God forsaken? That, that what we see take place, verses 3 through 14, that ultimately the reason it's a big deal is because there dis, there's a disruption of the house of God, of the temple. We see that play out with a guy named Eliashib. This is the, now the high priest of the time. He has done this. If you, if you go on to read, you'll see it. He has invited that guy, Tobiah. Remember Tobiah, the guy who opposed all of this from the very beginning, the guy who's a, a part of a different God, worships a different God in a different religion. This guy has come back. Nehemiah shows up on the scene, and he's living in the temple. That they emptied out a storeroom that was meant to take God's offering, and Tobiah Nehemiah's enemy, the Israelites' enemy, God's enemy from the beginning is not only a part of the thing, he's living in the thing. And the priest at the time, Eliashib, has let that happen. Now, why is that such a big deal? I just said part of it, but the other part is what we, read, what we saw at the beginning of chapter 13 is Tobiah's people, the Ammonites, had in, in a previous time attempted to curse Israel and weren't allowed to be a part of temple worship. So I know we're talking about a lot of different things here, but you've got to understand, this is something that God had set aside. This is my temple. This is for my worship, for my people. And in these couple years that Nehemiah leaves, they desecrate it. They disrupt it. They allow enemies into the temple to not just be a part of it, but to help lead it. It would be like, maybe this will help, it would be like in today's church, our church, for example, that I go outside of our faith and I go to somebody who's a Mormon, who's a leader in the Mormon church. And listen, I don't know how much you know about the Mormon church and maybe you have questions about that and we can talk about that later, but you need to know this. They don't worship the same Jesus that you and I do. I love them. I hope they come to know the real Jesus, but they don't know the real Jesus. They don't look to God's word. They have their own book. It's a different religion. It would be like if I said, hey guys, I have somewhere to go. I'm going to bring this other guy in. Oh, yeah, where, he, where is he from? What seminary to go to? What church is he a part of? He's a part of the church that the Mormons go to. And you would be like, Tim, that seems kind of odd. And not only did I let him in our church, but I said, hey, why don't you take the stage? Why don't you set up shop in our church? And you just talk to the people, and you be in all the meetings, and you experience all the sacrifices, and you just contribute and do your part. I would never do that, right? Thank God. I would never do that, just so you know, in case you're wondering. I would never do that, right? That's what's taking place. That's why it's a big deal. It has nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It's nothing like that. It has to do with idolatrous worship and allowing that to invade the sacred place of the temple. And so it's disrupting 
temple worship. That's the first problem Nehemiah comes upon. The second problem is that the people are working on the Sabbath. We see that in verses 15 through 22. We're going to talk about this in depth in a couple weeks. The week after Easter, we're going to start a whole series on the Sabbath and Sabbath rest. We're going to look at the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. So we're going to hit that more later, but what you need to know is this is part of what God has commanded them to do. This is part of what they've covenanted with God to do is to take a day and rest purposeful rest to designate that to trust God with that time and he comes back and they're not resting they're working there's merchants selling things inside the city and so Nehemiah shows up and sees that he puts the merchants outside the city they begin to set up shop outside the city and come back in at night and Nehemiah rebukes that as well this is a big problem because it's breaking God's command of the Sabbath. It's breaking their covenant with God in regard to the Sabbath. The third problem that we see is they're intermarrying with other religions. You see this in verses 23 all the way to the end. That when you intermarry, just like you let somebody in of another faith to lead in a church, when you let somebody in your life, in your marriage, where you're supposed to be equally yoked, a part of the same faith, worshiping the same God, when you bring somebody else in that and you guys know people who've done this, what happens? It disrupts the worship of the one true God. They begin to worship other things, and that's what happens here. Verse 26, he gives an example of Solomon. King Solomon, this would have been somebody that everybody would have known, known his story, the wisest man who ever lived, this great king, Solomon. What took Solomon down? He married women of other religions. He brought in idol worship. And Nehemiah is saying, listen, guys, why would you do this? One, we covenanted with God to see that this wouldn't happen. But also, you've seen prominent people like Solomon go down this road. You know where it leads. These are problems. Nehemiah comes back, and he sees these problems, and look at his response. We see it in verse 8. He says, I was very angry. He throws out all of Tobiah's furniture that was in the temple. He confronts the officials. Verse 25, this is where Nehemiah turns into an ultimate fighter. It gets crazy, right? Look at verse 25 with me. He says he confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Ultimate fighter Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah started Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, crying in tears. Now he's making other people cry, right? Big turn of events here. And so, again, we could talk about this for a long time. I want to do it briefly and just hit the main points of this. The big issue that we have to address, and this is what the commentaries address, is, is this righteous anger? As we look at that, we see Nehemiah pulling out people's hair. I don't know if you read that and feel uncomfortable, but I do, Right? And so we have to ask, what's going on here? Is this righteous anger? And so the first thing we need to see is that his response may not be righteous, but his motivation is. How do we know that? We know that because what's Nehemiah angry about? Is Nehemiah angry that they've disrespected him? That he's gone away for a little while and they've taken everything he's built and they've messed it up? Is he angry because they've disrespected him? No, he's angry because they've dishonored God. Because Nehemiah knows what's at stake here. 
He knows there are commandments of God that we should take serious. There are covenants that we made with God that we should take serious. That sin disrupts, it destroys everything, that it still does that today, and that it makes him angry. Now, is his response righteous? I don't think so. We can talk offline about that. You read some commentaries, and and some commentaries from the old school are like, yeah, get him, Nehemiah. And then some other commentators are like, the whole of Scripture, it seems like there's some other things going on there. Maybe he could have responded in different ways. That's kind of where I land, uh, but I'd love to talk more offline about that with you. It's an interesting conversation, but what I would say is this. What makes you angry? Is it only when you're disrespected, or is it when God is dishonored? Listen, there should be some things that make us angry. There should, should be some things in our lives that make us angry. Like when we're sinning, man, that should make us angry. Because God is holy. Because God is just. Because God loves you. And we take all that God has given us and we say, God, I have a better way. Right? That should stir up some anger within us. Now, now it shouldn't make us pull people's hair. Right? Don't do that. But it should make us stand up for God's word, for his righteousness. In our culture, we should stand up. We should get angry about the people who are defaming God's word. We should speak hard truths from God's word without apology. We should cover them with grace. We should love people, yes, but we have to stand up for God's righteousness. It should make us angry when that doesn't happen. What makes you angry? Is it just when you get cut off? Is it just when your kid drops a bowl on the floor and breaks it everywhere? True story. Right? Is that, what, is that what really makes you hot and makes you fired up? Or is it when you see God's word and you see how much God has done for us and then we see how we just spit on that, how we turn away from that so easily to other gods? We can talk about Nehemiah's response later, but his motivation was righteous. What makes you angry? Then we come to the end. Verse 31, last verse, look at it with me. It says this, Nehemiah says, Remember me, O my God, for good. In this chapter alone, Nehemiah says, Remember four times, specifically as he prays to God. Everything that he's built, everything they've covenanted with God has been dismantled. And Nehemiah says, God, remember, remember. And I think if we look closer and we just think about that in our own lives and relate it to his context, I think what we see is Nehemiah is saying, God, does this really matter? Does this really matter? God, please let this matter. Please remember all the sacrifices, all the progress, all the pain. Like we've come to the end and it's all back to where we started, but God, don't forget Please remember all of that. And listen, I think that's a perfect way for us to end as well. Because the reality is, as we look at the story of Nehemiah, they make progress. They come together and build a wall. They look at God's word. They begin to respond that and rebuild the people. But they stumble. They struggle. If they shared their testimony and we get their testimony, their story here, they share these highs But they share the lows. There's still a struggle. Does it matter? Does God remember? Listen, you need to know he remembers them, he remembers you. Even when you stumble. 
How do we know that? Lots of places, but Hebrews 6.10, this verse is on my mirror in my bathroom because I have to remember this. Here's what it says. Hebrews 6.10 it says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Why does God remember us? Why does God not forget us? Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. So does God remember Nehemiah because of how great a leader Nehemiah was? Does God remember these people because how much progress they made and how beautiful the wall is? It's better than that, right? God remembers them, and we have a guarantee that he remembers us because he's not unjust. It would go against his character and nature to forget them. And so Nehemiah prays. He declares, God, remember, remember. You need to know this morning, maybe you're in a place like this where you feel like, man, I made all these promises to God. I said I was going to do all these things. And I've stumbled in those same areas. Have you been there? You need to know God remembers. Not because you're great. Not because you're doing this thing perfect, but because he is just. God remembers. It all matters. And so that's, that's what we learn. That's why it relates to Palm Sunday. Jesus rides in on a donkey with palm branches everywhere celebrated as king. He goes on to die the death that we deserved in our place for our sin, for our struggles. He goes on to rise again in victory over all of that for all time, past, present, and future. He conquers death, sin, Satan, and the grave. Amen? He does that. He rides in on Palm Sunday to do that because he remembers. Because he knows what we learn in Nehemiah is that as great of a leader as Nehemiah was, as much progress as they did make, that we can only at our best manage sin. He can redeem all of it. He can pay for all of it. That only Jesus can do that. Listen, if you've been with us and you've looked at some leadership principles of Nehemiah, I love that. I'm a leader. I love learning that. You need to know that Nehemiah is just a shadow pointing to a Savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. That the book of Nehemiah, the end of Nehemiah, points us to Jesus. It points us to Palm Sunday. It points us to Easter, where God put an end to sin. Where God allows us the opportunity by the power of the Holy Spirit to have victory over sin. That we know that one day Jesus is going to return. That he's going to make all things right. He's going to rebuild every wall and every person that puts their faith in him. That's the hope. Nehemiah is just a shadow pointing to a savior, Jesus Christ. So, so what do we do with the end of Nehemiah? What do we do with this struggle? Listen, we do what they did. We serve, we celebrate, we forget, and we remember. That's our lives. But we look to Jesus through it all. We place our faith, faith in Jesus through it all, we're reminded, especially at this time of the year, because Jesus redeems it all through the cross and through the resurrection, that he's the hero. This is just part of the story. We know the whole thing, 
that Jesus is the hero. He's the one who's exalted. He remembers you, not because of how good you are, but because of how great and just he is. We celebrate that. That's when we sing. We have way more of a reason to sing than they did, right? We've seen Jesus redeem it. In our lives, in our world, he will redeem it. If we put our trust in him. Listen, people need to know this story. Not many people know this story. Maybe you're thinking, well, we live in Phoenix, Tim. Like, everybody knows about Jesus, right? Everybody knows about Easter. I mean, it's not just pastels and bunnies. It's about Jesus. No, they don't. They need to know it. They need to follow Jesus, not just some principles. They need to follow a person. We need to lead the way in that. We need to invite people to that. We need to take one of these cards that you got when you walked in, hand it to somebody on your way out. Hand it to somebody, a coworker, a family member, a friend that you, you hopefully have been praying for. And tell them about Jesus. Invite them next weekend. And you got to hear about the guy who redeemed everything. You can only manage your sin. You can only take care of the fruit of your sin. He will get to the root of it. He will heal your heart. That's Jesus. That's why he's so great. That's when we sing about him. That's when we tell others about him. Let's do that this week. Let's take that opportunity to celebrate him ourselves and to invite others into that process. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this time. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that we can look at an Old Testament book and take nine weeks to do that and ultimately see the person of Jesus Christ. That there's lots of stories in the Bible, but there's one greater story of Jesus redeeming all things to himself for those that trust in him, for those that place their faith in him. God, I pray for any man or woman who hasn't done that. They would do that now. They would stop listening to me They would start talking to you, and they would give their life to you. They would place their faith in your life, death, and resurrection, Jesus. That's our hope. That's our hope. And so I pray that we would celebrate that hope. It's an assured hope. It's a confident hope that we have this morning. And we get to celebrate you and the work that you've done in our lives. You don't forget us. You remember us. God, may we celebrate that. May we declare that with our family, with our friends, and in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.